with me, please, uh, to Gospel of John, uh, chapter 17. Gospel of John, chapter 17. <clears throat> Can you just hit the pause button there, just a second, Chris, just to... Now, back again to uh, John chapter 17. Uh, we'll read this together. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I come forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the word, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And you sent me into the world. Also I have sent them, as you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved them, sorry, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love which you love me may be in them, and I in them. Herbert Lockyer said that the Bible records 
no fewer than 650 definite prayers. And of those prayers, no less than 450 have got recorded answers. Now that alone is one great reason why we should pray. Many of the prayers in the Bible are very powerful. Some are very poignant. Some are prophetic. Some of the prayers are for personal needs. Some are intercessory, praying for others. Some are for healing, mercy, protection, wisdom, and guidance, and a host of other reasons why people prayed. And of the 19 times that it is mentioned in the Gospels that Jesus prayed, only here in John 17 do we have recorded for us the full transcript of one of Jesus' prayers. And what a mighty and powerful prayer that it is. Many, many, many years later, decades later, when John is writing his gospel, the Holy Spirit brings back to his remembrance this prayer of Jesus. John was there. John heard him praying this prayer. But after many decades, the Holy Spirit brought it back to him. And here we have recorded for us verbatim, word for word, every single syllable that Jesus prayed in that prayer. Now, if John took the time and the Holy Spirit inspired him to record this prayer for us, word by word what Jesus said, surely that must mean that he wants us to read it and begin to understand it as much as we can understand it and then to digest it. It'll be such a help to us. Now, this is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the entire scriptures. It took us just, what, maybe eight minutes or so just to read that prayer. It's 26 verses. And so it's a wonderful prayer. And this prayer of Jesus reveals his deepest longings, his deepest desires, not just for him, but also for us. And so it's a good idea it's a good thing to read this chapter, this prayer, and to read it many times. And I promise you, no matter how many times you read this prayer, there'll be something fresh and there'll be something new in it because these are the words of Christ himself. Abraham, and Moses, and Elijah, and Elisha, and Daniel, and David, they were all mighty men of prayer. God moved heaven and earth to answer these men's prayers. But none of their prayers comes close to this matchless, magnificent prayer of Christ in John 17. This is holy ground. This is burning bush territory. Actually, we should be taking our shoes off whenever we read this prayer. And either my feeble attempt or others more knowledgeable than myself could ever fully convey to you the depth and the breadth and the height and the scope of this great prayer. But we'll do what we can do. I want you to understand the setting of this prayer. In one hour, in one hour, Jesus will be betrayed into the hands of sinners. 
In one hour, Judas will kiss him on the cheek and betray him to the authorities. By three o'clock the next afternoon, Jesus will be hanging on a cross, dying for the world. And he knew that his hour had come. He says so. In verse 2, it's one of the very first things. He says, Father, the hour has come. He knew what was ahead of him. He knew how close it was. He knew that within an hour he was going to be betrayed. And yet, here he is praying this wonderful prayer. Imagine if you could go back 2,000 years and you could stand in among those disciples and you could actually hear Jesus praying this prayer and you heard every word and, and the very inflection on his voice. Uh, you know, and the, and the earnestness of this prayer uh, and, the, and the pulse of his longings and desires. Well, of course, we cannot go back in time, but we've got the next best thing. We've got it written for us to read, and not just in church like we're doing now, but in your private devotions. Now, it's good in your private devotions uh, maybe while we're on prayer, I'll mention this. It's good in your private devotions if you read some of the great prayers of the Bible. Encourage yourself and see what they're praying for and how they're praying. No better prayer than this prayer of Jesus. So this prayer can easily be divided into three parts. Verses 1 to 5. We'll probably not get any further than that this morning. In verses 1 to 5, Jesus first prays for himself. And then he tells the Father that his work on earth is finished, it's done. Then in verse 6 to 19, he prays for his disciples. That the Father would keep them and sanctify them. Then in verse 20 to 26, lastly, he prays for you and for me. And for the whole church. And he prays that we would be united with him as he is united with the Father, that we'd be one. And that we would see him in his glory and that we would share in his glory. What a prayer for us. And so, with that in mind, let's eavesdrop on this great prayer that Jesus is having with his Father. Wouldn't you love to have been there? to hear the Master speaking to His Heavenly Father and our Heavenly Father. And so He begins, verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that Your Son may also glorify You. Now, in praying for Himself, because He begins praying for himself. Realize this is not a selfish prayer. There is no man on earth as selfless as the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when he's praying that the Father may glorify him, he states very, very clearly is so that he can glorify the Father. The more glory he has, the more glory will go to the Father. And so it's not a selfish prayer. 
everything that Jesus did, every miracle, every conversation he had, every action he took, every attitude he showed, all of it was to glorify the Father. Every single word that he spoke, every little action he took, he said to his disciples, these are the Father's works. I'm speaking the Father's words. And so every time he did that and he got glory, then that was reflected back uh, to the Father. So in all the ways that he lived, all of it was to glorify the Father. Now, everything he did in these three years, all the miracles, all the wisdom he showed, all the words that he spoke, all of that was going to be eclipsed by this one single act of going to the cross. Nothing he had ever done would ever outshine this glory that he's going to show the Father on the cross. Nothing would ever bring more glory to God than this hour. It would forever shine through all time and eternity as an everlasting symbol of the glory of God. This is God's greatest work to the fallen sons of men on earth. And Jesus is praying. Think about what he's praying. He knows he's about to go to the cross and he's basically saying, Father, use this to glorify yourself. <laughs> Let me be glorified in this that you may be glorified. You know, similarly, any glory any small bit of glory that you or I may receive from men, let it be because the glory of God is in our lives and let it reflect back to Him as His glory. I told you before, it's cute that the church we go to in the Ukraine, they taught the children in Sunday school, if somebody pays you a compliment, you say, all glory to God. So if you say to a child, you've got beautiful eyes, they say, all glory to God. <laughs> I know that's cute, but in a sense it's true. Anything we are today in Christ, it's all glory to God, isn't it? It's not us, it's all glory to God. Then he said, as you have given him authority over all flesh. The first Adam had been given authority by God over all flesh. Over every bird that flew, over every fish that swam, over every creature that crept upon the earth. But he lost that authority. He lost that dominion that he had over all flesh. But Jesus Christ, the last Adam, as the Bible calls him, he regained all of that authority over all flesh. Think about this for a second. Think about Jesus in the wilderness. In Mark chapter 1, it says, when he went for the temptation, it said he was with the wild beasts in the wilderness, but not one could touch him. He could speak to the fish, and they would come into the disciples' nets. He could get one fish to put a coin in its mouth, probably from the bottom of the lake. 
and come and bite Peter's bait on his one hook. Because he had authority over all flesh. But he had a greater authority than that, did he not? No man, no man could touch Jesus before his time. No authority on earth could touch Jesus until it was the time. He says, I have the power to lay down my life. I have the power to take it up again. Pilate said, do you not know that I have the authority to take your life? And legally and humanly he had. And Jesus said, you would have no power over me at all except it was given from above. <laughs> and nobody had. Remember one time they took him to the, the brow of the hill and they wanted to throw him over? And how that he just walked through in the midst? He let them know, hey, you have no authority over me. Do you remember whenever they came in the garden to rest him? They said, whom are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, I am he. And what happened? And they all fell backward, letting them know that he had all power and all authority over all flesh and no one could take him before the time. But then he said that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. The age-old argument of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility comes into play here. But it's far too large a subject for us to tackle at this point in time. That's a subject that has divided the minds of the greatest men on earth. And so we're not going to take a few moments to try to unpack all of that. That's not a cop-out, by the way. But I think sufficient for us to agree together that the Son has given eternal life to as many as the Father has given him. In John 6, 44, he said, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So, even though we do have responsibility, but the great mind of God, the great wisdom of God, the great mercy of God, drew us. We're here today because the Father drew us to the Son. And if He hadn't have done that, we would not be here today. That's just the way it is. Who can understand that? I certainly can't. But I receive that by faith. Consider this thought for a moment. We're certain and we are assured that God the Father gave Jesus to us as a gift. For God so loved the world that he gave what? His only begotten Son. There's no question in our minds that Jesus was God's gift to us. That issue is settled. 
Thank God for that. Also, we're confident and assured that the Son has given to us eternal life as a gift. Romans 6 and 23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. How? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. His gift to us. But, did you ever stop and consider that we are the Father's gift to Him? Because that's what He's just said. In fact, lest we miss the point, He says it seven times in this prayer. That you are the Father's gift to His Son. In verse 2, Twice in verse 6, in verse 9, verse 11, verse 12, verse 24. Those you have given me. Isn't that a powerful thought? That you are God's gift to his son. Well, if you can't say amen to that, you're dead and you're backslidden. You say, David, well, I knew that. Did you? Didn't look to me as if he knew it. Didn't sound too excited about it. Maybe I didn't shut it enough. You are God's gift to his son. Absolutely nothing on earth is more important to Jesus than you are. Nothing. There is no created being in heaven. No angel, no cherubim, no seraphim. Nothing. Not the ones who cry holy, holy, holy around the throne. None of them. Put them all together and they're not worth one of you to Jesus. He didn't die for them. He died for you. He didn't shed his blood for anybody in heaven. He did it for you and for me. In Matthew 13, verse 45 and 46, that beautiful parable of the merchant man who found a pearl of great price. And it says he went out and he sold all that he had that he may purchase that pearl of great price. We have done that a disservice. Not wanting to appear somehow proud and somehow arrogant, we have said Jesus is the pearl of great price. Not what it's saying. We didn't sell all we had. We didn't give everything we had to go and to purchase him. He gave everything he had to come and purchase us. That's the truth of that parable. Because you are the Father's gift to the Son. You know, whenever you go to pray, pray. you should say that. Father, I thank you that I am your gift to your Son. Didn't deserve it. Didn't earn or merit that position. But that's just the favor of God. That's just the mercy and grace of God, isn't it? Then he says, verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, who you have sent. We cannot know God. We cannot experience eternal life unless and until we know Jesus. 
Now, the reason why I say that is this. There are multitudes, there are untold millions of people out there who talk about God. If you say, do you believe in God? They say, yes, I believe in God. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, I'm not too sure about that. He was a good man. He was a great model. He was an exemplar. He was a prophet, but Son of God? I'm not sure about that. They don't know God. They don't know the God of the Bible when they say that. Because you can't know God unless you know his son. You just can't. There's lots of people go to church today and they'll talk about God respectfully. Maybe even reverently. But they don't know Jesus. They deny his son. Even if they say, well, he is the son of God, but they'll deny him in other ways. They'll not live for him. They'll not serve him. They'll not love him. They don't know God. They know about God, but they don't know God. Because no man can know God the Father unless they know and until they know God the Son. They just can't. And this is why it's so important that we lift up Jesus. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw men unto me. Why does he want men to be drawn to him? Then they're just unto the Father. Because they'll never know the Father until they know him. Same goes for us, by the way. We must realize that the only way to know the Father is to really know the Son. Think about this. Philip, Jesus is talking about going away, back to the Father. Philip says, well, show us the Father, and that will be sufficient. And Jesus said, Philip, have I been with you all of this time? And you still say, show me the Father? Have you not seen the Father? Have you not seen the Father in me? The works that I do, the words that I say, these are the Father's works. These are the Father's words. Have you not seen that? You can almost feel Jesus getting exasperated. Philip, after three years, have you not seen it yet? Have you not got it? Now he's not saying he's the Father. But he and the Father are so one that if we see him, we'll see the Father. If we don't see him, we won't see the Father. If we want to know the Father, we better get to know Him. Have you got that? This is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, who you have sent. Then in verse 4 he says, I have glorified you on earth, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Now Jesus is praying here before the work is finished. But the issue of the cross is so settled in his heart, there is no going back. Nothing and no one, not in heaven, not on earth, not under the earth, Nothing can stop Jesus going to the cross. 
As far as he's concerned, it's as good as done. Now he's going to have to go through it. But in his mind, it's already finished. Yes, there will come a moment on that cross when he will say those words. He will cry, it is finished. Tetelestai, it is finished. But right now, in his mind, and his heart, it's done. That shows you the determination. That shows you how willing he was wanting and able to go to this cross. And then he said, verse 5, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory that I had with you before the world was. Now what glory is this he's talking about here? Because glory is mentioned several times and it doesn't always mean the same thing. The glory he's talking about here was his pre-incarnate glory. As the second person of the divine trinity, before the world was, he had a glory. He was covered in a glory. Now, when Jesus came to the earth, now, get this. When Jesus came to the earth, he didn't lay aside his deity. He was still God, but he was God in human flesh. He didn't lay aside his deity, but he laid aside that glory that he had with the Father before the world began. That pre-incarnate glory. He laid that aside. But let no man say when he came to earth, he was no longer God. He was. But he was man also. And somebody said that there was times he was so much like man, it was as though he wasn't God. And there was times he was so much like God, it was as though he wasn't man. Because he was the God-man. He was God veiled in human flesh. And how he longed for that glory that he had with the Father before the world began. He laid all of that aside to come to this sin-cursed world and to be born in a filthy manger and to die upon a cruel cross and to suffer the indignities and the persecution and the hatred and the bitterness against him in those 33 years. And he did all of that for you and for me. You can see why. Now that it's, the hour has come, just a few more hours and he will die, you can see why. He's longing to have that glory, to be seated at the right hand of the Father on high, isn't he? No man has fully seen Christ and all of his resplendent, ineffable glory. That John on the Isle of Patmos probably came closer to it than anybody else alive. When he saw the risen, ascended, glorified head of the church standing in the midst of the seven churches with eyes like flame of fire, with feet like burnished brass, with his hair like white as wool. That's the closest anybody has come to seeing Christ in his glory. But I don't believe he saw all of his glory. And later on he prays that you and I may see that. 
That's a good part when you get to that part of the prayer. He's desperately wanting you and me to see him in all of his resplendent glory. You say, well, what about the time of the Mount of Transfiguration? Just a little tiny peep. Just a little tiny peep. As if God just, in a flash, just drew back the curtain. And Peter, James, and John were amazed, weren't they? Peter wanted to stay there forever, didn't he? He didn't want to leave it. He just got a tiny little peep. Can you imagine what it's going to be like in the glory? We talk about going to the glory. And we mean, can you imagine what it's going to be like? We can't, can we? Hmm. Just the light from the Lamb will lighten the whole place. <laughs> and so Jesus is praying this fantastic, wonderful prayer. And he begins it by praying about himself and the glory that he had with the Father and his deepest longing is to have that glory again, to go back and be clothed with that glory with the Father and to for us to see him in it. And he comes to that later. And so, rather than push on with this right now, I'm going to cut a little bit short because we're going to come back to it tonight. And we'll look at another section. We may finish it tonight, but we may not. It's a big prayer. It's a profound prayer. And we'll look tonight to see what he said about his, his disciples those 12 that had gathered around him that we did a series on some time back. And then if we have time tonight, if we don't, we'll make time soon, but I'm going to talk about fasting next week, so we'll maybe better have time tonight. Or if not, well, we'll work it out somewhere. Because I want to get to the bit where he prays for you and prays for me. Now, of course, you can read it. You can read it every day this week if you want. Please do. That'd be great. Fill your mind full of it. Fill your heart full of it. Read it over and over and over and over again. Read it in different translations. Get the, the feeling of it. And then as we come back, we'll look a little bit deeper and just see what made Jesus really tick. What, what really captured his heart and his thoughts and his imagination and his desires and his impulses. What really grabbed Jesus? Well, you read this prayer, you'll soon find out. And do you know what? It's not the physical. It's the spiritual. It's not the temporal. It's the eternal. And that's what he wants for us too. Amen? Let's pray.